It's Stephen Henderson, and today on the podcast, we're going to talk with University of Michigan professor Elizabeth Anderson, who studies economic inequality. We're going to talk about whether all of the strikes and labor actions that we're seeing in Detroit and around the country are a sign of something ailing about capitalism, the system that we have here in the United States. Really interesting conversation about the limits of capitalism and the opportunities to make it work better for everybody. Professor Anderson, welcome to Detroit Today. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So I want to start with an observation, and it's something that uh, I was thinking about the other day when I was reading about the strikes that were taking form against the casinos here in Detroit. And, and my observation was about capitalism, about the system, the economic system we have here in the United States. It seems to me that at its core, there's something about capitalism that depends on a kind of innate human good faith. I mean, if I own capital and resources, often I need other people to do the work that helps produce that capital and grow those resources. And what I say to those people is, hey, come work for me and I will share with you some of what our work produces. But then I kind of have a choice. I can exploit those people. I can pay them less than they need to live on. I could agree to pay them more and maybe not come through on those promises. Uh, or I could, or I could could pay them fairly. But in general, I have broad decision making power in that case. And if I break that good faith in too many instances, uh, the, the workers could decide to go do something else. But of course, individual workers don't have a terrible amount of of power in those in those cases, and that's why we have unions. It does seem to me that one of the things that's broken right now is the sense that that faith, that good faith, will pay off for workers, even in the context of union bargaining, that the growth of wealth at the top of the economic ladder has been so dramatic over the past decade or so, while wages at the bottom have grown moderately or stagnated, that we're at a point where people don't believe in that good faith. They don't believe that owners will share fairly with the workers who produce the profits that the owners end up with. I, I, I want to start with you reacting to that observation and uh, telling me whether, whether you feel the same way about where we are uh, in this stage of American capitalism. Well, I agree entirely with you that workers have a harder time getting a fair shake from their employers. And that's because capitalism in the United States has transformed since the 1980s into a kind of neoliberalism. Some people call it shareholder capitalism. It's an ideology that says the firm's sole responsibility is to maximize profits for the shareholders or the owners of the firm. And workers just have to scrape by with whatever is left over from that. Mm -hmm. What that has done is empowered uh, executives 
to engage in a lot of purely extractive business models <clears throat> where they're just redistributing uh, uh, the revenues from workers to shareholders. And that we used to have a set of regulations that made that much more difficult. But over time in the post-war era, labor unions declined in power. They were subject to massive assaults by uh, corporations. And so now they're in a much weaker position than they were right after World War II. And that's a major source of workers' problems today. Yeah, yeah. So would you say that American capitalism then is broken because that good faith that we depend on from uh, those who have capital and resources is so is so missing in the equation. Is what we're seeing right now, I guess, a manifestation of the idea that this just doesn't work and and can't work? Yes, I agree. The ideology that says that firms exist solely to enrich shareholders is ridiculous. Why do we have an economy? so that everybody can be served. That includes workers, it includes consumers. There's no reason at all to place shareholders or the owners of firms on top of everybody else in such a system. You write a lot about this word, neoliberalism, and that idea that favors market logic and doesn't like, of course, government in intervention. I want to talk a, a little more about that, where it comes from, and why we did decide that uh, the market should make all of these decisions kind of free of, uh, of, of, of government regulation. I mean, some people call it intervention. I guess I would, I would say it's, it's regulation of, of the economy. But, but we didn't, as you point out, we didn't used to exist that way. What, what, what changed? Well, I just want to point out that Markets, in a way, don't make decisions. Firms make decisions. That is, the executives of firms. Governments make decisions. Consumers and workers make decisions. But the market really doesn't make decisions. The real issue is who determines the rules of the market game? Mm. Because that determines the relative bargaining power of executives versus workers. And what deregulation amounted to was not the elimination of regulations of the market, but essentially handing over power to determine the rules of the market game to business corporations. <laughs> you always need rules of the market game. And the question is who's setting them. And now for the most part, it is the capitalists who are setting those rules in their own interests to the exclusion of the interests of workers and consumers borrowers, mm -hmm. and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're talking with Elizabeth Anderson, a professor of public philosophy at the University of Michigan. She's the author most recently of a book titled Hijacked, How Neoliberalism Turned the Work Ethic Against Workers and How Workers Can Take It Back. We would love to hear from you, our listeners, during the conversation. Give us a call and what, let us know what you make of the current strikes that we see here in Detroit in particular. 
against the Detroit Three Auto Workers, against Blue Cross Blue Shield, and now against the three casinos that uh, we have here in Detroit. Um, uh, talk about what that means for our economic system. Does it say something about the inequality that we exist inside in the United States? Does it say something about uh, the good faith of that system somehow breaking down to a point where people just don't trust that they can get a fair shake from the companies that they work for? If that's true, give us a sense of what you would do to change that. How would you devise a system even that would look different from the one that we have now. Of course, what we're seeing right now with these strikes is designed to get a better deal for the workers who are involved. Uh, but even if they are successful, it doesn't have an, it doesn't have much of an effect on the system itself. Uh, these would be individual victories. Should they lead to greater kind of policy considerations, I think is the question. We would love to hear from you on the phones at 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation that way. Also give us a sense uh, of these new strikes, uh, the casino strikes, what you make of what those workers are saying and what they're asking for. Uh, do you think this piggybacks on what the UAW is asking for of the Detroit Three and what workers at Blue Cross are are asking for? Uh, how successful do you think they might be? Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and uh, and and we can include you that way. Um, I, I do want to put that same question to, to you, Elizabeth. Um, uh, what is the fix for what we're seeing uh, to to I guess rein in uh, what we're seeing in the economy in terms of uh, the runaway inequality that has taken place? Well, a major thing is we have to rebuild labor unions so that workers have a voice in how the firm is run. And we also have to expand the power of labor unions to bargain on behalf of workers. In other countries, in our peer countries in Europe, many of them, labor unions bargain on behalf of the vast majority of workers, even those who don't belong to a union. And that gives them enormous power bargaining power, because ultimately wages are determined by bargaining power. American labor unions depend disproportionately on the threat of striking in order to get a better bargain. But strikes come at a really serious cost to workers themselves, mm -hmm. because while they're on strike, they lose their wages and strike pay doesn't come close to making up for what they got with their wage. In other countries, you have sectoral bargaining, where basically the unions of all the major sectors like restaurants and hotels and cars and so forth, they make a grand bargain with management on the other side. <clears throat> they don't have to resort to very many strikes because sectoral bargaining is already built into the system. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, let's go to Robert in Detroit. Robert, 
Welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Thank hey. you. Sure. Uh, I just wanted to contribute my voice to the unions. I fully support everything they're doing. I think it's great at, you know, the UAW, Blue Cross Blue Shield, the casinos. Um, I was reading earlier this morning that in 2001, CBS News reported minimum wage would be $26 an hour had it kept pace with productivity. And wow. that was as of 2021, <laughs> before all the inflation that we've seen right. in the past year. So I think you know, just generally, a lot of people are struggling, and it's terrible. Um, so much has risen to the top, and to address this kind of question about neoliberalism, um, I think worker co-ops is a little bit of an extreme idea, but I think we need to move in that direction because we just do not have the level of uh, economic opportunity that we used to have in this country, <laughs> and I don't know how we're going to get there. Um without something like that. So thank you for allowing me to make my comments. Sure, Robert, uh, great comments, and, and we really appreciate the call. Um, I, I want to talk about a couple things out of what Robert said, Elizabeth. First is uh, this idea of what the minimum wage would look like if it had kept pace with uh, inflation and uh, and other changes in the economy. Um, you know, $26 an hour is a lot more than a lot of people make these days. It's a lot more than an auto worker, uh, an entry-level auto worker is making. Uh, part of the argument in the strikes against the Detroit Three automakers is that $17 is the, is the beginning wage and that uh, uh, you have to work an awful long time to work up uh, from there. It, it could be years before you get to something like $26. How sustainable is our economy when wages are that low? And how sustainable is capitalism when it when it embraces uh, wages that are as low as those? Well, it certainly gives a raw deal to workers. It's ridiculous that we can have full time workers who still don't make a living wage. That's what the first contributor was talking about with these casino workers who are still even homeless. Yes. It's an outrage. <laughs> There's no reason. We don't need that. Other countries, peer countries who have a lower GDP per capita than we do, pay, you know, Starbucks baristas a living wage. This is possible. It's well within our means to do so. And it's an outrageous injustice that we don't. So yes, raising the minimum wage is a very important step. But we also need to empower workers' voices in the firm. Yeah. It's not just about wages. It's about dignity and respect and being treated decently in the way people have to conduct their work. Yeah, uh, uh, Robert mentioned the idea of worker co-ops. I wonder if you can help our listeners understand what what that is uh, and and what difference you think that might make. Yeah, so a worker cooperative is a worker-owned firm. Workers rotate through positions, including managerial positions. Uh, things are run democratically. You elect the officers of the firm, that is the workers get to do so. They share in all the profits. Uh, there are hundreds of worker cooperatives in the United States. Most of them are pretty small. Uh, in other countries, uh, they're rather larger. 
Uh, in Spain, there's the famous Mondragon Corporation. It's a gigantic conglomerate employing thousands of workers, very, very successful, that's entirely owned and managed by the workers. I, I believe that we should be experimenting more with cooperatives and making it easy to easier to form them uh, to see where that model could take us. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Elizabeth Anderson of the University of Michigan. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Let's go back to the phones here uh, and talk with Mike in Gross Point. Mike, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, and good morning. Sure. Um, I just I just started listening to this, and I completely agree with Professor Anderson's position about uh, being hijacked over the last 40 years. However, I reject the concept of something being broken or fixed. I think that just leads into extremism of something's either perfect or it's completely not perfect. Hmm. I think living, you know, I'm in my 50s, and living through this period, I was a Reagan Republican, and our system was pulled to the right. And it's been exacerbated over the last 40 years. And I really think that reason our system is so robust is that it's open to being fixed or being uh, being reformed. And that's where we are, I feel, at this point. We've gone so far to the right, so far to um, radical capitalism, that we need to realize that capitalism needs to be regulated just like socialism needs to be regulated. If you have unregulated on either way, you lead to destruction. And that's a, that's a bellicose term. But I think that we're in a period where we're starting to pull the pendulum back. And I think that's essential for the American nation to continue to be robust yeah. and continue to continue in the path our founders set for us. So, so know, Mike, it so, can't be one or the other. So Mike, one of the things that, that I'm really curious about is, is uh, your conservatism and the fact that you were, as you point out, a Reagan, a, a Reagan Democrat. Um, that's a, that's Republican. a, I'm sorry, Reagan Republican. Um, uh, and now, now I espouse the complete dissolution of the Republican Party. <laughs> I think it's become a party that is not in keeping with the American ideal, and yeah. it really should be dissolved. Hmm. But, but, Mike, I want to, I want to push you just a little bit. The Reagan era, in many ways, and and much of the deregulation of the Reagan era, is what at least sets the the tone, sets the pace. <laughs> For many of the things that we see now, um, uh, as a as a Reagan supporter, do you, do you do you not see it that way, or do you just think oh, things went too far? Absolutely. Yeah. I yeah. view the 1980s as a reaction to a pendulum swinging the other way, and it was a it was a very strong reaction. What I think what became so toxic is that you connected that economic thought with the politics of the South. Hmm. And I think that made a very toxic cocktail that we have to be, we have to be careful about as a nation. Hmm. Um, I am a Northerner. I make no bones about it. The South needs to be managed hmm. because they are a region that very much wants to be taken care of. We took, we, we brought them kicking and screaming into this Republic, if you will remember. Yes. 
and they rebelled against well, them. Yeah. So I'm not saying that Southerners deserve all the rights and privileges of all citizens. However, you cannot allow their politics to infect the union. That's a, or, that's a really or interesting. We are on a road to destruction. Yeah, it's a really interesting perspective, Mike. I'm really glad you called and shared it. Uh, Elizabeth Anderson, I'll give you a chance to react to what Mike's talking about here. Yeah, what Mike says is really interesting. I just want to point out that in the history of the work ethic, which we still live under, it really split into two possibilities. One is our contemporary neoliberalism, shareholder capitalism, capitalist rule, and the other is social democracy. And importantly about social democracy, the stress is on democracy, not revolution, not overthrowing everything. Hmm. It's about a more equal system where workers have a voice in not only in elections, but also in the government of the firm. And I also want to point out, I was really interested in what Mike was saying about Southern politics. A big issue that the South had was the belief that any gains for Blacks came at the expense of whites. Yes. And we still hear that today in, in contemporary Trumpism. But in fact, if you look at what the economists say, the best thing that ever happened to the Southern economy was the 1964 Civil Rights Act that banned racial discrimination and employment. Mm. What it did was unleash an enormous amount of black talent mm -hmm. to compete for better jobs and raise the overall training level and productivity of Southern workers. And so whites gained from a more productive, overall more productive labor force. And that's really the, at the heart of what a well-functioning division of labor looks like, where everyone profits from the productivity of their fellow workers, from the higher productivity of their fellow workers. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So what we got was everybody could gain. Um, and that's what social democracy promises. Yes. Uh, and has, has actually delivered. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, Mike, really provocative ideas. Love that you called and shared them. Uh, let's go next to uh, to Charlie in Royal Oak. Charlie, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Stephen. Um, yeah, I mean, the wage disparity between the execs and the line workers is just it's gluttonous. I, I don't know how else to put it, but. I wonder if the big three top execs took a significant haircut in their compensation packages, if that would send some kind of positive message for the hmm. negotiations. Yeah. Uh, Charlie, it's a great question. And it's the, it's the focal point of some of the discussion about the strikes. Mary Barra's salary has been discussed an awful lot in the last month and, the, and not just her salary, but the growth of her salary since the bankruptcies, uh, I think it's a it's a fair question if executives recalibrated the way that they're paid, would it fix some of what we were talking about in terms of the broken faith? I think uh, that uh, that is has set in with, with with workers. What difference would that make, Elizabeth Anderson? Oh, I think it would make a lot of difference. If you look at the deteriorating, the, the ways in which wages have fallen behind increases in productivity uh, since around 1974 or so, 
where did those lost wages go to? They went to the executives and to the shareholders. If you ask the economists, they'll tell you that this that there's zero correlation between the performance of executives and how much they're paid. Mm -hmm. Mostly their, their high pay is due to mergers and acquisitions. The larger the company that you rule, the higher your pay. But most mergers and acquisitions actually do not improve productivity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just another extractive mechanism. So I do think we need vigorous antitrust, shrink the corporations. Executives will make less money <laughs> because they're they're running smaller firms. Yeah. They don't have monopoly power that then they can extract profits and line their own pockets. That yeah. would be a big change. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's go next to Ron in Detroit. Ron, what's on your mind? Uh, Stephen, can you hear me? I sure can. Yeah. Um, I like the fact that your guest referred to the importance of the civil rights movement to the labor movement, because my point of reference is my father's union, the National Association of Letter Carriers, actually had a a national uh, wildcat that started out in New York City and then spread throughout the country. But in, in studying that strike, I realized that th there were things going on by other sectors like the civil rights movement, the movement against the war, the women's movement that sort of inspired a national mood of rebellion where uh, oppressed together with workers and workers were building on mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So I, I wonder if the current number of strikes and strikers could mean that we're reaching a point where, uh, you know, there's a lot more uh, liberation movement across the board, you know, going on in the country. Yeah. Uh, great question, Ron. Uh, Elizabeth Anderson, are we headed back to the 1970s in some way? Well, you know, I've wondered that myself. I, I'm not quite sure whether we're there yet, but there is seriously rising discontent mm -hmm. uh, among a lot of groups. And the question is, you know, how to channel that discontent in a constructive way. And I do think uh, strengthening labor unions would be a major way to uh, channel that discontent uh, in a constructive way. And labor unions have been at the forefront of helping even workers who don't belong to the unions. For instance, in a campaign to raise the minimum wage, labor unions are all for it. <laughs> They've been really working hard for that, even though not all, very few minimum wage workers are union workers. I, I do remember in the 70s, though, that the 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 labor actions in part produced this this sense of backlash in the 1980s when Reagan is elected in in 1980 one of the first things uh, he does is take after uh, uh, the air traffic controllers right um, uh, and and he essentially breaks that union in the name of uh, airline safety, n number one, but also airline profit, and it, it it helps usher in a lot of the things that that we're seeing. If if we're headed back to the seventies, are we then, I guess, headed back to the eighties after we're after <laughs> we're done? <laughs> 
Well, I think a lot of people are waking up to the fact that the Reaganite neoliberal model has not served us very well. And we're, we're looking at the breaking point now, and that's why we're seeing so many strikes. But what I've said before is that strikes are not an optimal way to increase the bargaining power mm -hmm. of workers. That is a product of the way our labor laws and union laws are set up. And you could set them up differently, as is common in Europe, where labor unions get to bargain over much larger chunks of workers. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> that, I think, would be a vital uh, first step. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's go quickly to Dan in Southfield. Dan, I've only got about a minute and a half left, but uh, go ahead. Yeah. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I... First of all, your guest is a genius. I love everything she's saying. But uh, I um, am always astounded by the fact that people who work at a place, like let's say I have a bakery, and I need people to work there to bake the bread or whatever. Those people are investors in my business. Yes. Why aren't workers considered investors, yeah. like with the same rights and considerations of the other, you know, just because you great, have. Yeah. Dan, it's a great question. I, I don't want to cut you off, but I do uh, need to get back to Elizabeth Anderson before we run out of time. But th that uh, idea of the workers as investors instead of uh, as kind of at will parts of, of corporations is, is really interesting, Elizabeth. Oh, I agree completely. And and uh, that that last caller was exactly right. Workers are investing their their sweat into the firm and also the development of firm specific skills and they're investing that into the firm and so they should be accorded at least the respect that in that capital investors get. I mean, these are human capital investors. Yes. Yes. Okay, Elizabeth Anderson of the, the University of Michigan. Really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. It was fun. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Our assistant producer is Maddie Boyer. Our music is by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. And podcast editing is by David Lyons. Our program director is Adam Fox. Detroit Today is a production of WDET in Detroit. And you can support the show by leaving a rating or a comment. Thanks for listening.